0: Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, why bother? We have a chapter here which is full of genealogy, full of lists of descendants, and and they're not even descendants that are in the line of the promise, the line of the holy seed of the Messiah. They're just an offshoot. Why bother to spend a sermon on Genesis thirty-six? And, and the reason is, is because God tells us something about the character of Scripture. And you're, you remember the second letter of Paul to Timothy, chapter 3, verse 16, all scripture, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. This chapter is the Word of God. It is God-breathed, it is spirit-inspired, and God will do something with his word in this chapter as he brings it to us also this afternoon. And one of the first things that he reminds us of as we look at this chapter is that the scripture is historical record. We do not follow cleverly devised myths. The Bible is not a book of origin stories for comic book characters. But the Bible deals with history, with real people. This is the history of the people of God. This is the history of the world. This is the history of the church. And this is our family history because we are sons and daughters of Abraham. And so these are historical facts that we have before us. And that's the character and the nature of the Scripture, historical record is the, the, one of the main characteristics of the word of God. And so let's look at what this historical record teaches us about the Lord Jesus Christ, about the gospel. Now, we, we ended chapter 35 with a funeral. His sons, Isaac, breathed his last. He died, was gathered to his people, old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. And the Holy Spirit puts Esau first. A reminder there, The order of birth, a subtle reminder of what he threw away, what he despised, what he rejected. The birthright of the firstborn to be the one who continues the line of the Messiah, of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the blessing of the firstborn, which went along with it, Esau rejected. Now, when we come to the end of chapter 35, we've just finished the the long Toledot of Isaac. And you remember from perhaps you remember from the beginning of the Sermons on Genesis that we can divide the book of Genesis into 10 sections of varying lengths. And we have the introduction in chapter 1 of the creation of the heavens and the earth, and then we have 10 Toledot, and the word Toledot is a Hebrew word which means generations. And so you remember that Genesis 2 verse 4 says, okay, the, the, the world was created, the heavens and the earth were created. Now what What did this give birth to? What came out of this? And so in Genesis 2 verse 4, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. And of course, in that first toledo, we have Genesis 3.15, where God promises to put enmity between the seed of the servant and the seed of the woman, between the world and the church. And out of that conflict and enmity will come finally the Christ. So that's in the first Toledo. Then in Genesis 5, verse 1, we have the the second one. This is the book of the generations of Adam. What came out of his life? And what comes out of his life is the sin and the death which accumulate until it comes to the time of the flood. Genesis 6, 9, that's the third Toledoite. These are the generations of Noah and all the things that came out of his life and his ministry as God called them to it. Genesis 10, verse 1, That's the fourth Toledot. These are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And so that short Toledot of one chapter describes how from these three come all the nations of the world, all the nations that try to get together at Babel. Then Genesis 11 verse 9, these are the generations of Shem. And Shem, of course, is the one who is in the line of the seed of the woman that leads to the Christ. And so the focus of Scripture goes to that holy line, Genesis eleven twenty-seven. 27. Now these are the generations of terror. He's in that line. And as we come to the generations of terror, which, which tells us the whole story of Abraham, we see that the Lord changes his focus in redemption from dealing with the whole world and he focuses on one man who will become one nation. So there's a, there's a narrowing of the focus of redemption. Then in Genesis 25, verse 12, these are the generations of Ishmael. And that's just a few verses. Ishmael is an unbeliever. He's a son according to the flesh, not according to the promise. And so there's this little stump that's cut off. Just a few generations. Now in in human terms, Ishmael's pretty amazing. He's pretty successful. He's rich. He's powerful. He has 12 princes that come from him. But in terms of Eternal life and redemption, he's a dead end. In terms of Genesis 3.15, he's on the other side. He belongs to the world of darkness and unbelief and rebellion against the Christ. Then Genesis 25 verse 19, these are the generations of Isaac. And Genesis 25 right to Genesis 35, which we just finished last week. That's what we've been working through, that eighth Toledote, which have to do with what comes out of Isaac's Life. We have in Abraham, one man, one child. We have in Isaac, one man, two children. We have in Jacob, one man, 12 children. And in the next and last Toledo, we will have 12 children turning into 12 tribes as God works through history to bring about his promises in his time and his way. But before we get to that final Toledo, that final section of generations. We have our chapter here, chapter 36. These are the generations of Esau, that is Edom. And Edom means red. And the Holy Spirit says, you remember Esau? Esau the red, he was born red, and he rejected all the promises of Christ and all the promises of the gospel for that red pottage, that red stew that was in that pot that Jacob was cooking up. He he rejected his birthright and his blessing. He saw that is Edom, the covenant despiser, the covenant breaker. Look at him in verse 2. He took wives from exactly the place where the children of God were not supposed to get wives, from the Canaanites. And they're Canaanites, they're Hittites, they're Hivites. And all of these names of the nations from which he took his wives are all names which we find later on when the iniquity of these nations has come to its fullness and God says to his people, go into the land and destroy them utterly because these are vile, wicked, godless, bloodthirsty, murderous, idolatrous nations, unspeakable evils, which I cannot mention off the pulpit with kids present. These were wicked nations. That's where Esau went for his wives. And then verse 3 Basimath, Ishmael's daughter. Well, there's a connection with the people of the promise, right? Dad and mom aren't too happy with all the godless wives that I have. I'll get Ishmael's daughter. There's a kind of a connection to Father Abraham. But Ishmael is another covenant breaker, a despiser of the holy things of God. That's Those choices of bride tell us a lot. About Esau and his attitude towards God and the promises of God in Christ. Now, what does he get? What does he get from all of this? What does he get for selling his soul? Well, he gets the world. He gets worldly power and success. Look at verse 7. The possessions were too great for them to dwell together. You remember he had hundreds of warriors with him as he met Jacob when he was coming from Padana Aram. This guy is rich. In modern terms, he's probably a multi-millionaire. He's powerful. He's got an army, a private army of hundreds of men. He's got a lot of stuff. God gives material blessing also to Esau in honor of Abraham and Isaac, his fathers. But all these blessings, these material, these external blessings that God gives him, only serve to increase judgment. You see, if you, get, if you get a lot of material blessings and you have no connection to Christ, you have no heart for God, you have no faith in the Lord Jesus, you do not use these blessings to worship God, then all these blessings will only do one thing. They will bring curse upon you. As you stand at the last day before the judgment seat of God, every one of those material blessings will stand up and accuse you of being an ungrateful, idolatrous enemy of God who misused his good gifts for your purposes and not for his glory. And so if you're not a believer, the last thing you want, the last thing you should want is lots of any kind of blessing because it just increases your judgment. So Esau doesn't use worldly success to honor God, but he uses it for his own glory and to sin. Now he went, verse 6, into a land far away from his brother Jacob, just ups and, and leaves the promised land. Doesn't mean a thing thing to Esau, whatever, the promised land, I'm out of here, We're going to go somewhere else. The promises of God mean nothing to him. He was brought up in them, he knows them, he was catechized in them. He was supposed to be the one that inherited them and was a leader in the church. He just throws it all overboard. But God uses his sinful blindness and his foolishness to make room for Jacob. It was good that Esau left because this land is meant for Jacob and his Descendants, And this is the sovereign providence of God, even using the sins and the foolishness of the unbelieving in order to make room and to bless, make room for and to bless his people, his children. And so Esau settles, verse 8, in the hill country of Seir. Now, if you're looking at a map, you see the, uh, the Sea of Galilee up here. You've got the Jordan, you've got this Dead Sea. And then to the south and southeast is where the land of Seir is, modern-day Jordan, southern Jordan. And this is where one of his wives came from. You see Aholabama there in verse 5? Aholabama is his wife, and she's the daughter, or look at, look at her in, in verse 2, she's the daughter of Ena, the daughter of zibian the Hivite. And then in that section in the middle of the chapter, verses 20 through 30, which lists the inhabitants of the land, Aholabama is mentioned there as well. So so Esau knows the place. He he fetched one of his wives from there, and he goes to basically the land of one of his father's-in-law. He knows the place, and he had been there before. You remember that when he came to Jacob the first time, he had come from there. He'd he'd certainly been traveling there. Aholabama means my tabernacle is a high place. So Aholabama. or ohal, ohal is tent, and Bama is high place. High place meaning a place where you go worship idols. So my tabernacle is a place where you worship idols. Not a good name for the wife of someone who is supposed to be a child of God. She is a daughter of the great chieftains of Seir, and Esau marries into this people group, He mixes in with an unbelieving and idolatrous nation. Then he takes over the country. He takes over the country for himself, and those who do not submit to him, he destroys or expels. Now, this is God's providence, and and we know that God did it if we turn to Deuteronomy chapter 2. If you just grab your Bible there for a second and go to Deuteronomy 2, and then look at verse 5 and then verse 12. Deuteronomy 2, verse 5, where the the Bible says... uh, about the Edomites, the people of Esau who live in Seir, do not contend with them, for I will not give you any of their land. No, not so much as for the sole of the foot to tread on, because I have given Mount Seir to Esau as a possession. God gave it to him. Despite all his sin and all his unbelief, God gave him a place to stay. Then look at verse 12. The Horites also lived in Seir formerly, but the people of Esau dispossessed them and destroyed them from before them and settled in their place as Israel did to the land of their possession, which the Lord gave to them. So what we have in, in Esau is something which Jacob was waiting for. Jacob was waiting to take possession of the land. He didn't have it yet. Esau, he gets it. He gets a place of his own. He gets seer to dwell in, and God gives it to him. God gives him a, a land And God gives him a people, children, grandchildren, all kinds of descendants. And they're important and successful and powerful people, even kings coming from him. Look at verse 31, kings. This is pretty impressive. Esau is a real success story. Look at verse 31. These are the kings who reigned in the land of Edom. So there's Esau, he's got great kings and glory and success and power and wealth and land and lots of land, people, lots of people. All this stuff that God promised to his church, to the people of God, Esau seems to have, and Jacob doesn't. What about the line of the promise? What about the holy seed? Where are they compared to Esau? Well, look at them. In the, at the end of chapter 35, they're mourning because there's another person that's dead. And then look at verse 31 of chapter 36. Look at the end of that verse. These kings were reigning in Edom before any king reigned over the Israelites. So Esau's way more advanced politically and socially and in terms of power He's got all the success. And what do we have when we turn our eyes from him to chapter 37, the next Toledot, when we look at the Toledote of Jacob, the generations of Jacob? What do we have? We have a bunch of squabbling, bickering kids ready to kill each other, ready to sell their own brother into slavery. And in this next Toledote, of Jacob, which is the last one in Genesis, the holy seed is about to be sold into slavery, all of them, in Egypt. That's where Genesis is going to end, in Egypt. Nowhere near to taking possession of the land. Now, what had God just said to Jacob? Do you remember that? Genesis 35, verse 11, if you flip back a page. Here he is at Bethel, and God says... Genesis 35, 11, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply a nation and a company of nations shall come from you and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you and I will give the land to your offspring after you. And here is Jacob. He's got nothing. Lord, Esau has it all. What's going on? If he didn't know who said it, it would seem like a bad joke, what God said in Genesis 35. Because he saw the unbeliever. He's got the wealth and the power, and and he's got the kings, and he takes possession of his own land. What's going on here? What's going on is the sovereign grace and providence of God. Remember when they were in the womb, what God said, Genesis 25, 23, the older shall serve the younger later on in the Old Testament, the prophet interprets that in this way. And he speaks in the name of God. Jacob I loved. Esau I hated. What we're seeing here in chapter 36 in the context of chapter 36 is God's sovereign, gracious choice. Now we tend to like to choose winners. We like success. We gravitate to winners and people that have success and and offer success and, and demonstrate success, but God chooses losers. It's a hard thing to hear, isn't it? You show up on a Sunday afternoon. God chooses losers. He chooses the weak. He chooses the nobodies. He chooses people like us. We try to fight sin and we lose. We try to fight temptation and we lose. We try to overcome our old nature and we lose. We try to become more holy in our own power and we lose. We try to fight against worldliness and the devil and we lose. There's no hope for us except pure sovereign grace. There is nothing in Jacob To impress, there's nothing. God chooses to place his infinite, sovereign, gracious love upon Jacob. A man who's weak, who vacillates between being Jacob and Israel. A dysfunctional family. It's just a mess. And God says, I place my love and my grace here. And God chooses to leave Esau, the self-made man, to himself in his sin. Now, what's happening here is the ongoing work of God throughout history of applying the promise of Genesis 3.15. That royal line of the Messiah is not a line of glory. It's a line of humiliation. It is often, it is usually through weakness and insignificance that God draws the line through history which will come to the Christ. Why does he do that? Well, we read Romans 9, and the the apostle reminded us in Romans 9 that God doesn't choose according to the flesh, but it is the children of the promise who are counted as children of the. Of God. If you just turn in your Bible for a moment to Romans 9, we'll just look at a few verses here. Romans 9, 10 to 13. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. she was told, The older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. It is God's sovereign grace, God's sovereign will, God's sovereign decision. There's nothing in Jacob that makes him more worthy. But God simply chooses Jacob and rejects Esau. How is that fair? Maybe that's something which you're thinking. How is this even fair? It's two little babies, how could God do that to them? What right does God have to do that? Well, Paul deals with that, doesn't he? Paul deals with that. Excuse me, says Paul there in Romans chapter 9. You're going to stand up, and you're going to call God into the dark, and you're going to judge God, you're going to call God to account. You're going to judge him by what standard? By what standard? Who are you? Look at verse 20. Who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded? Say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Brothers and sisters, the sovereign electing grace and love of God in Christ that chooses unworthy sinners, not just a few, but a multitude no man can number out of a mass of fallen humanity, that sovereign grace is offensive to our sinful hearts. But think about that. What's wrong with that? when we will stand in judgment over God and say, God, we think you're not matching up to our standards. What's wrong with that? There's something very wrong with that. Who are you, oh man? You know, if we demand perfect justice, if we say to God, God, you got to be fair, perfectly fair, then what are we going to get? Well, we're all condemned to eternal judgment. That's what Fair is that every single one of us pays for our sin eternally in hell. Brothers and sisters, the problem that we sinners have with God's sovereign grace, God's sovereign electing grace, is not a problem with God. It is a problem with us. We don't know who we are. We don't know what we deserve. And so we are surprised by God's righteous judgment. But That's wrong. God's righteous judgment should be our baseline. It should be where we begin. Of course, all of us deserve to be put out of God's presence forever and put under his judgment forever. Of course, if we know who we are, if we know who he is, that should be unsurprising. What should surprise us is grace. Why would God save anyone? Why would God choose me? I know who I am. I know what I deserve. Why would God save sinners like us? Brothers and sisters, we need to learn to be surprised by grace and not by God's righteous judgment against sin and sinners. And we have to understand that even though God, from all eternity, sovereignly elects his children and reprobates those who are not, we have to understand this, that, that no one is dragged kicking and screaming into hell against his will. There's, there's not going to be a whole pile of people in hell saying, wow, I really wanted to follow God. I wanted to worship him. Why am I here? It's not fair. I, 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 God made me not be a elect. That's not, that's not going to happen. Hell is God giving sinners what they want. They live their entire life saying, God, get out of my face. God, I don't want to hear your word. God, I don't want to worship you. God, I don't want to recognize you. God, I don't want to acknowledge you. Go away. And hell is God saying, okay, I gave you all those years on earth. I held back the final judgment to give you more time for repentance. And you used all that time, you used all those blessings I gave you to despise me, to hate me, and to tell me to go away, and now I'm gonna do that. I'm gonna withdraw every sign of my gracious presence, and you will only know me in my righteous judgment forever. That's hell. And everyone in hell gets exactly what they were looking for an existence without God, in as much as that is possible, because of course, God is always present everywhere. So Esau's made his choices. Esau has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. Esau has trampled underfoot the Son of God. Esau has outraged the spirit of grace and all these external and material blessings that God poured out on him. Wealth, power, numerous descendants. He used not to worship God, to serve God. But he used to fight against God. And just look at the history of Esau's descendants. When Israel just left Egypt after the the, the years of slavery, they crossed through the Red Sea, they went, started going through the desert, and who were the first ones to attack them? The Amalekites. The Amalekites, look at verse 16. They're descendants of Esau. And they attacked them, they attacked them in the rear guard, where the elderly and the children and the sick and the weaker and the more vulnerable were. They were vicious and cruel. So they come out of Egypt, and the first thing they get is the descendants of Esau trying to destroy them in the most vicious way. Then they're on the way to the promised land, and Edom refuses to let them pass through their territory the first time they try. They block them. They say, you, we don't want you to go into the promised land. They close the door to the church of God to be in the promised land. And then all through the history of the Old Testament, they are fierce enemies of Israel. These these are the brothers of Jacob. Edom is brother to Israel. But throughout the entire Old Testament, they have this murderous hatred against their brother. Take your Bible if you have it handy. Psalm 137 verse 7. You get a little bit of an idea of how much Esau's descendants hated the children of the promise, the line of the woman, the holy line of the Messiah. So Psalm 137, verse 7, Babylon came in and destroyed Jerusalem, and there was a lot of bloodshed and destruction. And who was cheering on that day? Who was saying, yeah, oh, wait, you missed one. There's one hiding over here. Come and kill this one too. Who was it? It was the Edomites. Psalm 137, 7, remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem. How they said, lay it bare, lay it bare down to its foundations. The Edomites were cheering when the holy city and the holy temple of the holy God were destroyed and the people of God murdered and captured. The Edomites were right there cheering it on. And you think later on, even during the time of the exile of Esther, the story of Esther, when Haman was scheming to totally exterminate the people of God, totally exterminate the line of the promise. Once again, as so often, it's hanging by a thread. And who is Haman? Well, he's a descendant of Esau. And so Esau's got all this stuff. He's got external blessings, wealth, power, numbers, all the things that so easily impress us. But he uses them to hate Christ, to attack Christ, to try to stop the birth of Christ, to side with the seed of the serpent. Esau against Jacob, hell against heaven, the world against the church, the darkness against the light. And so Genesis 36, which is one chapter, and that's it. That's the end the holy spirit's reminding us that this is just another stump cut off in the family tree of the messiah doesn't go anywhere even though in worldly terms it seems to be way more impressive than the holy seed itself than the line of the messiah than jacob it doesn't go anywhere but if you look at esau and all his glory and then you look at jacob what is the Holy Seed compared to what we see in this chapter? Well, well, nothing really, and it reminds us of Genesis four. You remember Genesis four? Just scan over that chapter for a second, and you and you remember that in Genesis four we have all the um, all the descendants of of um, Cain, and th- these people are pretty impressive. They, they're they're into uh, science, and, and arts, and, and culture, and technology, and they're, they're really impressive people doing impressive things. And on top of that, they're very violent and assertive. That's, that's the world in Genesis 4. And what about the church? Do you see the church there in Genesis 4? You remember way back when we looked at Genesis 4, look at the end After all the impressive things in the world, what does the Bible say about the church? Just right at the end there, verse 26, To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. The world, in all its glory and success, the church, in all its insignificance, in prayer. Now, this is not something just from Genesis or from the Old Testament. This is something which is a recurring theme in the history of redemption and in the history of the people of God. If you turn with me in your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, and you'll see that the apostle reminds us that this same way of working of God continues in our day as well. 1 Corinthians 1:26 1, to 31 where the apostle says, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world. That's us. To shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world. That's us. To shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not. That's us. To bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. That's the lesson God is teaching us, over and over and over. And we're about to sing Psalm 33, the last stanzas. And the Holy Spirit reminds us in that psalm as well. God doesn't save people who trust in themselves. God doesn't save people who are to themselves wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. God doesn't save people who trust in kings and in wealth and in earthly splendor and success and human effort. But God looks with sovereign grace and favor upon those who trust, who believe in his mercy. And so we look for Christ. We look for the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of man. We look for the glory of God, not the glory of man. We look for heavenly power, not earthly power. We look for heavenly, eternal life, not the passing vapor and mist of a merely earthly existence here in this chapter, we have a stump. We have a dead end. For all the opposition to the Messiah that they can muster up over the generations, it comes to nothing. It is destroyed. That's Esau. He just fades away now. And that insignificant, that messed up, that dysfunctional family there in Genesis 38, throwing throwing each other into holes and trying to kill each other and selling each other as slaves and lying and deceiving to one another. That bunch of unworthy sinners. It's embarrassing to read about the stuff they do and say. But that bunch of unworthy sinners, God sets his sovereign grace and love upon them. And he transforms them into a royal priesthood and a holy nation. They have nothing to offer. All they have is faith. All they have is a longing for the coming of the Messiah, the Christ. Our soul awaits the great Redeemer. That's all they've got. And that is all they need. Amen.